Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on. And then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. Just as a heads up, this episode does discuss the topic of suicide, so adjust your dial accordingly. Okay, this episode we're going to start in the year 2063. Hey. So the pitchfork sequence came back. Oh, great. Ah, not great. The tree is dead. What do you mean? No links, nothing. We tried running it through a few times. The DNA sequence is there, and it's human, we check, but no links. No relatives in the database. I didn't even know that was possible. I've seen it once before. A guy born and raised in a cult. Nobody in the community believed in science or medicine, so they never did any DNA tests. Nobody had been sequenced for over a hundred years. How'd you figure out who he was? We didn't. Somebody confessed. The pitchfork case doesn't really seem like a cult thing, though. Autopsy said heart attack, not suicide or murder or anything. Yeah, it's weird. Maybe one of those tinfoil hat super paranoid people, but it would have to be a whole family, a whole extended family for generations. We've got a big enough database that just one person opting out doesn't really mean anything anymore. Or someone is messing with their DNA to hide something. I thought that was an urban legend. I don't know, maybe. Do you have another explanation? Probably just a lab malfunction, honestly. Okay, well, you go talk to them because I don't want to. They're mean down there. So this future is one in which pretty much everybody gets their DNA sequenced and loads it up into Ancestry databases, and as a result, knows their family tree, at least for a couple of generations. You've probably seen the ads for this kind of DNA genealogy before. And today, we're going to talk about what the future of genetic genealogy might mean for culture, science, identity, and, as you heard in the intro, crime. Statistically speaking, you probably know someone who's really into genealogy. Uh, Apparently, uh, in terms of search terms (laughs) that people use on the internet, genealogy is the top entry except for porn. This is Carl Zimmer. He's a science journalist, and he's got a new book out all about the history and future of heredity called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. We, we all kind of look at our parents or grandparents and kind of wonder, well, is that who I came from? And did, did they give something to me that makes me me? And, and maybe having kids of my own, I started thinking, well, how are they going to turn out? And are they going to be like me or not? But family trees have been important for a lot longer than we've had the internet. Heredity, just the word itself, comes from the Roman Empire, from hereditas and in Latin. The, the Romans, like, like other ancient peoples, uh, had lots of very elaborate rules for 
how people inherited things. So somebody dies, and then who gets the stuff? For the vast majority of history, most people knew pretty well what their family tree looked like, right? You lived with your family and often with your extended family. People didn't move around that much. But then humans started moving around a lot more. And in countries with lots of immigration and colonization, you see a much greater interest in genealogy because often the precise details of where people came from have been lost. You know, for example, one of my ancestors named Roger Goodspeed um, came over uh, in the 1630s to Massachusetts. uh, And if you're coming from some little farming village in England and you're going to uh, Massachusetts, uh, you know, on on a sailing ship, you're never going back. (laughs) That's it. So he would have to have said goodbye to that village and to all of that ancestry going back centuries that took, that was in and around that village. And all he could bring with him were stories about those ancestors. And Roger Goodspeed was probably illiterate, just judging from the way he would sign documents with an X. So, uh, you know, all he could do was tell stories to his children, and maybe they told stories to their children. But, you know, after a couple generations, those stories have a way of petering out. Even the early colonial Americans were really obsessed with their family trees. Benjamin Franklin actually, you know, went to England and did a lot of genealogical research trying to to reconstruct his family tree. And and he went to these villages where his ancestors had come from and he heard stories about it and so on because it really mattered. He really wanted to get a connection. Thomas Jefferson, he really wanted to know where his ancestors came from. He, He did genealogical research and he was trying to figure out, you know, his family coat of arms. Uh, back in in England. Obviously, for other folks, their family tree is a mystery because their ancestors were imprisoned, stolen away from their lands, and shipped off as slaves. For most of those folks, there are no genealogical records to even go back to. Their entire family history has been erased. We're going to come back to those folks in a little bit. But the desire to know your family tree is about more than just a historical urge, right? Knowing about who your family is can have health implications. It can explain physical traits. We know now that this connection is in part genetic, that parents pass their genes down to their offspring. But before anybody knew what genes were, people understood that there was some sort of physical connection between past and future generations. Humans have bred animals and plants for certain traits for a long time. Before they knew that they were meddling with genes, they basically thought that what they were doing was magic. If you had asked around 100 years ago and asked people, do you know who Luther Burbank is? In the United States, most people would probably say, oh, yeah, of course I know. He, he is the plant wizard. Luther Burbank, the plant wizard? grew up in Massachusetts, the 13th of 18 children. And when he was 21, he bought a plot of land and started experimenting with breeding potatoes. And right off the bat, he had a pretty huge success. You know, so if you go to McDonald's and order some french fries, you are eating the potatoes that Luther Burbank first created. Russet Burbank potatoes are just much better than previous potatoes. And he 
brought them into existence in, in the mid-1800s um, just through his own uh, magic, almost, as it were. Burbank sold the rights to the Burbank potato for $150, and he used that money to move to Santa Rosa, California. And after a few years of struggling uh, as, a, as a farm worker, he was able to um, build a reputation for himself as somebody who could create amazing varieties that people would want to buy, and he would sell them to nurserymen and so on. And he became extraordinarily wealthy. Remember, this is before anybody knows pretty much anything about genetics, basically. And that's why Luther Burbank is known as a wizard. And he would talk about it in very mystical terms, you know, that you know, he was just stirring up the heredity inside of these plants, and then somehow they were doing amazing things for him, almost. But right around the same time, scientists in the U.S. and Europe are starting to rediscover the work of Gregor Mendel. You might remember the story of Mendel from high school biology. He's the guy who did all the experiments with the peas. He would crossbreed them and find that certain traits seemed to be passed down in predictable patterns. Luther Burbank didn't know anything about this, but scientists were starting to think that by studying Luther Burbank, they might be able to better understand this Mendel stuff. They would travel to his farm in Santa Rosa, California, hoping to crack the mysteries of his magic and that that would somehow really get them to the the true secrets of heredity. It was apparently this incredibly frustrating experience for these scientists. So here was this guy who was doing all these amazing things with plants. He clearly knew something. He understood something about heredity that could be useful to science. But when they would travel to Burbank's lab to try and figure out what it was that he knew, what his secret was, they would come up empty-handed. At one point, the Carnegie Institute actually paid Burbank $1,000 every year for his insights. And they sent a young geneticist named George Shule to go shadow Burbank and record his experiments. You know, poor Shul, uh, this young scientist, would follow Burbank around uh, all day, every day, and Burbank would just get very annoyed with him and just just try to avoid him at all costs. Uh, and then after a while, Shul just said, "Like, you know, I just don't think there's any there. There, I just there's no there are no scientific records. He's not really doing experiments. This isn't science. I mean, he's a he's more of an artist." To make things even more confusing, with Burbank, it was sometimes hard to tell which of his ideas were good and which of his ideas were scams. He became convinced that um, he could create a big, valuable crop by creating cactuses that didn't have uh, spines. And, uh, and then he could feed them to cattle in the desert and, and they would, you'd have lots of herds of cattle that would be thriving on this new food. And for a while, this was a very popular plan and people would order it from Burbank and his associates. But then after a while, uh, what it turned out was that in a lot of cases, they were actually taking regular cactuses and picking off the spines and then packing them in the mail and sending them off, and these things would eventually grow their spines back. <laughs> Despite these uh, less-than-honest efforts, Burbank created a ton of new plants, hundreds of new plants, some of which you can still buy in catalogs and in the grocery store today. 
He made some real improvements to the fruits and vegetables out there by using these breeding techniques and a very rudimentary understanding of heredity. Today, we know that what Burbank was doing was selecting for certain genes in his breeding techniques, at least when he wasn't hustling people by peeling the spines off of cacti. And that genetic component of our heritage, our heredity, has collided full force with the pre-existing obsession with ancestry and genealogy. You've probably seen the commercials for various DNA ancestry tests where you can spit into a tube and a company will use your DNA to tell you where you come from, right? Here's an ad for Ancestry.com. Growing up, we were German. We danced in a German dance group. I wore lederhosen. When I first got on Ancestry, I was really surprised that I wasn't finding all of these Germans in my uh, tree. I decided to have my DNA tested through Ancestry DNA. The big surprise was we're we're not German at all. 52% of my DNA comes from Scotland and Ireland. So I traded in my lederhosen for a kilt. Ancestry has many paths to discovery. So Kyle thought he was German. He grew up with German traditions. But his DNA test told him, in fact, that his genes came from Ireland. So he gave up all his German culture? This is weird, right? Since when do your genes tell you what your family traditions should be? When I first started seeing these commercials on TV, I have to say that I just kind of laughed them off. I mean, nobody would do that, right? I thought nobody would be ready to give up their whole heritage because of one silly DNA test. I was wrong. My mom and my aunt did Ancestry DNA's Ancestry test, and it came back and told them that they had all this Mediterranean DNA, which didn't really make sense, and they had barely any Middle Eastern DNA. And my aunt just, like, kind of freaked out. My aunt is super into genealogy, She's been doing the family tree for a long time, and she was just like, where is this Italian from? I thought we were Syrian. She, like, went into this whole monologue about how she needed to start learning to make pasta, and, like, this is why she liked pasta so much. This is Kristen Brown. And I am a biotechnology reporter at Bloomberg. So before her mom and her aunt took the fateful DNA test, here is what they knew about their family history. My grandfather was adopted, and he was adopted by a Mexican family. He grew up in basically a Mexican ghetto in Dallas, not actually knowing that he wasn't Mexican. You know, Spanish was his first language. My grandfather basically only ate Mexican food. He watched telenovelas. But when he was 10 years old, I think, he discovered that he was actually adopted. And the family lore is, first he pestered, these nuns at the orphanage where he was adopted from for the name of his birth mother hopped a bus to Pennsylvania at 10 years old and went to go meet his birth mother. He did not tell his parents that he was doing this, by the way. So my grandfather goes to Pennsylvania and finds out that he's actually Syrian. His mother, she had him at 16. They lived in a very insular Syrian community. And so my grandfather had always thought that he was fully Syrian, and we really had no reason to, to not believe that. I mean, he he looked Syrian, which was sort of why he could pass as a Mexican for so long. You know, he was dark, dark hair, dark eyes. So this is the family story. Then Kristen's mom and aunt, they do their DNA test, and they get these results that say they're Italian. We're all kind of sitting around in my grandmother's living room when my aunt opened her test and my mom opened her test, and they both, like, started flipping out, which was kind of ridiculous just because, like, We knew my grandfather was Syrian, 
But we identified culturally as Hispanic anyways, since he was adopted, you know, like that was my grandfather's first language. So like our culture was the Mexican culture. But all of a sudden this DNA test told my aunt that she was Italian or Greek. And she was like, oh, my God, I need to learn to make pasta. Now, Kristen is a reporter who writes extensively about biotechnology, including these exact kinds of DNA tests. And she had always thought that those Ancestry.com commercials were silly, too. I mean, who would do that? And then all of a sudden, here she was with her own family ready to abandon ship on their Syrian heritage. It was in that moment that I realized how powerful not being accurate can be. My aunt was willing to like completely change her sense of self, like just with one result from Ancestry DNA. An Ancestry DNA test gave her an identity crisis. And then it sent me on a hunt to disprove her so she could, you know, like calm down. To disprove her, Kristen decided to do three different consumer DNA tests. I sent my spit to, to Ancestry DNA, which is Ancestry.com's DNA testing arm. And to 23andMe, and I also sent it to Helix, which does an ancestry test with National Geographic. And as she expected, she got three different results. Can you tell me what ancestry DNA told you, I guess, you were? Okay, so I'm, I'm actually, I'm pulling up my results here. So 32% Scandinavian, and then it gave me a little bit of Southern European, a little bit of Irish, a little bit of British, and 11%. Middle Eastern, as well as 10% the Caucasus. Okay, and then the National Geographic one, or Helix. Yeah, so Helix basically told me I was 23% Southwestern European, 28% Northwestern European, 16% Asian minor, 9% Jewish diaspora, some Eastern European, which didn't show up in any other test. Okay, heading over to 23andMe's Ancestry Report. Okay, yeah, so I think these results were from January. And they said I was, let's look at the Middle Eastern. I was 3.3% specifically Middle Eastern and overall 5.5% Middle Eastern North Africa. There are a couple of reasons why each company winds up giving different ancestry data. When you send in your spit, companies sequence only a handful of snippets of your genome. Then they compare those snippets to their reference population, which is basically a bank of other genomes that they know the origins of, to see what matches. But nobody is using the same bank of genomes to compare to. So each company has its own individual different reference population, and then they each have their own individual proprietary super-secret algorithm. So we're starting with two completely different factors for each company, a different reference population, and different algorithm. So you can imagine that when you have a different data set and a different algorithm, you can very easily get completely different results. And even within a single company, your results can actually change over time. 23andMe, like a lot of companies, is always updating their algorithms and their reference population. Today, 23andMe's results for Kristen are actually different than they were when she first did this in January. Today, Ancestry says that I am 15.3% Western Asian North Africa. So they actually changed the geographic terminology, too. It is interesting that you can just log in and it's like a weird, like, Neopets thing where it's like, let me check my stats today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, suddenly, 
Suddenly, since January, I've become almost 10% more Middle Eastern. That's like pretty good, right? And this kind of gets at the weirdness of putting so much cultural weight on your genes, right? Should Kristen be doing 10% more Middle Eastern stuff now since her results have changed? And her family history makes things even more complex, right? Her family traditions are largely Mexican, from the family that adopted her grandfather. But genetically, Kristen isn't Mexican at all. Already, I don't think of my DNA as my culture because I know that I'm not genetically Mexican. And yet, like, that is the cultural heritage I was brought up in, which is kind of interesting because for me, like, that was already kind of conflicting, right? I really identify with a lot of aspects of the Mexican culture, but I never had to deal with any of the racism or, you know, like biases that anybody has against Mexican people because I am so white looking. You know, I have blue eyes. I have red hair. I'm pale. I do not like Mexican at all. And I identify with that culture. So already for me, like I never thought of DNA as related to culture because I don't have Mexican DNA. And that is the culture that I like feel close to. So for Kristen, no amount of DNA testing is going to really tell her what culture she should connect with most. But for some people, if the Ancestry.com commercials are to be believed, genes might hold the key to their culture. And this is something that the scholar Donna Haraway and others have called gene fetishism. Gene fetishism is when uh, genetic links and genetic relationships come to stand in for much more complex sets of social relations. So tracing one's uh, a little bit of one's ancestry back to some particular human that you can't even name probably in history long ago is quite different than having sets of lived relationships among a particular people. So that's what it is to fetishize the gene, right? My name is Kim Talbert, and I am a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples Technoscience and Environment at the University of Alberta. Um, I'm an enrolled citizen of the Sisseton Wahpeton Oyate, which is a tribe in South Dakota. Kim is also the author of a book called Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. And she's been studying the ways that these genetic genealogy tests intersect with Native issues for years now. There's a particular kind of desire to find a Native American or an Indian in the family tree by a lot of Americans. A lot of Americans have this this mythology uh, that they've got Native ancestry, often with no proof and of and no lived uh, relationship within with Indigenous communities. In fact, according to Ancestry.com, the most common question they get from people once they get their DNA results back is, "Where's my Native American DNA?" The rise of these online ancestry tests have actually been kind of a thorn in the side of tribes. Well, what's been happening since these DNA tests have hit the market back in the early 2000s is you've got these completely disconnected people who have no lived history with an indigenous community who have these stories of an Indian in the family tree. They think, oh, maybe I'm related to this tribe. And they start sending in these DNA tests to tribal enrollment directors. And a tribal enrollment director will open up that envelope and say, what is this? I don't, you're 23% Native American. So like, who's your ancestor on my base role that I can link you up to? And I need the genealogical documentation to do that. So it's really interesting. Like they don't know what to do with these tests. Simply having Native American DNA doesn't really mean anything for most tribes. What tribes are interested in in the United States is documenting one's biological descent from an ancestor listed on the base roles. 
Base roles are these lists of people that tribes put together around the turn of the 20th century when the U.S. federal government was doling out land. Most of that land was deemed to be surplus land because by then you'd had such a genocide of indigenous people, there weren't as many left. (laughs) So at that point, how are you going to decide which Indians to give land to if you don't have a list of Indians, right? And so tribes, uh, tribal groups didn't have registers. You know, they were kinship structures. They, and uh, kinship is a little bit fluid, you know, and so who belongs to a community is, is actually historically been a really dynamic and ever-shifting kind of population. But when you start having all this federal management of Native people's lives and bodies and land, that's when you need lists of Indians, or lists of tribal members. Um, And so contemporary tribes today go back to those base roles. The fact is, most Americans don't have a Native American in the family. They don't have any Native American DNA. And what that term even means, this idea of Native American DNA, is really complicated. Just to take the Americas, you've got hundreds, if not probably thousands, of of distinct peoples actually throughout the Americas, both uh, pre-contact and today. And people wouldn't, you know, this idea that you would group um, thousands of distinct cultures and peoples under this umbrella that we have now come to recognize as a racial umbrella called Native American DNA, you know, it's, I understand why scientists do this because they're looking at ancient history through the lens of genomics, but it really, it's just not the way that peoples in the Americas obviously would have thought about themselves. Plus, remember how Kristen got three different results from her DNA test? That kind of variability is even worse when you talk about Native American DNA. Remember, these companies are comparing your DNA with their reference population. The bigger the reference population for a certain region, the more accurate the results will be. Well, most ancestry sites don't have very much Native American DNA to compare to, which makes the results on that front not super accurate. And in fact, most Native people don't need DNA tests to tell them who they came from, because tribes have now kept pretty detailed genealogy records. So you've got these offices at tribes all over the U.S. where they have extensive genealogical records. But the thing about Native people who are already entangled with their communities, because we have this thing called enrollment or citizenship, they already know who they're related to in a much more fine-tuned way. So they would never have to rely on a DNA test in the first place to tell them that they're related. So this episode is about the future of DNA genealogy, right? And what happens when everybody has their DNA sequenced and loaded up into these databases so that they can find their ancestors. We've talked about where this all came from, how we wound up in this moment where we seem to think that DNA can dictate our culture or our identity. We've talked about some of the misuses of these DNA ancestry tests. But right now, most people haven't had their DNA sequenced by these companies and websites. What happens if that changes? What happens if they do? How do all the things we just talked about change when it's everybody who knows their background and history? All that, plus the first ever true crime segment on Flash Forward, after this quick break. Okay, so we've covered the ways that these genetic tests can be inaccurate and weird and get into sticky places when it comes to culture and identity and who we really are. But there are some other weirder applications to this kind of DNA genealogy that we're about to see a whole lot more of. And one of them 
is that these databases are going to be used to solve crimes. So we're going to start this half of the episode with a story about an unidentified body. True crime finally comes to flash forward. If you want to skip this part, you can jump ahead about 15 minutes. Okay, so on Friday, September 14th, 2001, a young man checked into a hotel in a small town in Washington state called Amanda Park. Which is a very, very small community. I guess you could say perhaps in the middle of maybe nowhere because it's not it's not exactly a known place. This is one of the moderators for the subreddit dedicated to this case. She goes by Clan McCrimmon on Reddit, and she didn't want to use her real name for the podcast. So we're going to call her McCrimmon for the rest of this episode. And he checked in. It was about 4.30 in the afternoon. How he kind of got there, nobody really knows for sure. They thought maybe he came in by bus, but neither the bus drivers recognized him. So then he went in, he checked in as Lyle Stavik from Meriden, Idaho. So then he initially, I guess, planned to stay for one night or said he was going to stay for one night. And then he ended up staying a few more nights. Why, we're not totally sure, though. So Lyle Stavik stays at this hotel for a few days. He's kind of weird. The innkeeper has sort of a weird interaction with him at one point, but he mostly keeps to himself. He was seen pacing alongside the highway. He did converse somewhat with the maid and the the clerk. Then at 11.30 on Monday, September 17th, the maid went in to clean Lyle's room. He was supposed to check out that morning, but he hadn't yet. So she knocks, nobody answers. She goes in and she finds Lyle. Initially, she thought he was praying. She called the clerk's uh, nephew. They went back in to go and check the room again, and he was, they found out he was dead. Lyle Stevig had hung himself in his room using his belt. On a nightstand, he had left a comment card with the words, For the Room, written on the back. But it wasn't a suicide note. Inside, there were eight $20 bills to pay for his room and tip the staff. So obviously the hotel calls the police, the paramedics and law enforcement arrive, and they look around his room. Lyle has no identification, no driver's license, no credit cards. And then they search the information that he gave to the front desk, and they find nothing. Lyle Stevik is a fake name, and the address... Was not an actual address, or not his real address. It was a Best Western motel. So they have no idea who this guy is. And they don't really have any leads. Lyle doesn't seem to match any of the missing persons reports. And like our moderator said, Bay Harbor, Washington is a really rural area without a lot of resources. So law enforcement wasn't going to launch an all-out expensive hunt to figure out who this guy was. So from 2001 to about 2006, this case was completely cold. There were no clues. It seemed like Lyle Stevick's real identity would stay a mystery forever. But then, in 2006, McCrimmon was perusing a missing persons database. Which might sound kind of weird, but it is a thing that true crime people do for fun. And I came across him on, on a now defunct database. And so then just something pulled me in. I was 15 at the time. Something just pulled me into him. When you read about Lyle Stevick, you hear this kind of phrasing a lot. There is something about him that pulls people in. But it's really hard for those people to describe exactly what that thing is. 
I just I looked at his picture and it's like he's just I guess is distinguished or maybe not I don't know if it's dis, if distinguishable is the right word but he was kind of distinct I guess from everyone else and so then I guess that just pulled me in because I'm kind of wondering like who is this guy it's like he was kind of different from everybody else in a way because like, um uh so I'm trying to kind of describe it in a way that kind of makes sense oh and I, I don't quite know so McCrimmon gets really interested in trying to figure out who Lyle Stevick is. From then on, it's like it, it kind of became my goal to get him identified so that he could go home. Because in my mind, it's like nobody should end up the way he did. So she goes onto this forum online called Web Sleuths and she posts about him. Just his picture and the very limited information that the autopsy and public records show about him. And this starts a conversation on web sleuths that, over time, gets really big. Eventually, the community moves from web sleuths to other social media sites. There are now nearly 4,000 people subscribed to the Lyle Stevick subreddit. And there are a handful of Facebook groups as well. And these groups are really active. We have crowdfunded an, an age regression, recreating Lyle as how he might have looked when he was younger. We also ended up getting the police reports later on through a Freedom of Information Act request. Members spend hours and hours combing through all of this information, looking for leads, which has led to some pretty out there theories about who this guy was. Well, the the 9-11 one in particular, which I think was which I think was a huge long shot and kind of silly. A lot of people thought he was a 9-11 hijacker because of the time because of the uh, time between 9-11 and the time that he killed himself. So this idea went that Lyle Stevick was supposed to have been one of the hijackers during 9-11, but he didn't go through with it. And the guilt and fear he felt over not doing it led him to commit suicide. There's no real evidence for this theory, just to be clear. But this wasn't the only strange theory about Lyle's identity. There was another one where people thought that he was perhaps a circus employee because of the isotope uh, reports that placed him in all these different states and or at least all these different parts of the United States. And some of it actually coincided with their with their touring schedule. Perhaps unsurprisingly, none of these leads really went anywhere. But McCrimmon and her fellow sleuths never gave up hope. No, I always I always believed that we would find out who he was. Still, from the outside, things were not looking good. Sure, there were all these people online thinking about and researching his case, but they couldn't figure it out, and they weren't really coming up with any new clues. So from 2006 to 2018, there were really no new leads in this case, even as the online conversation grew and grew. Then these two women stepped in. I'm Colleen Fitzpatrick. I am a co-founder of the DNA Doe Project. I am the founder of Identifinders International. I work on cold cases for the police using genetic genealogy. I'm Margaret Press, and I'm the other co-founder of the DNA Doe Project. I've been doing genetic genealogy for several years, mostly helping adoptees find their biological parents. Colleen and Margaret met years ago. The same way everybody does on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why? Duh. No, uh, Margaret, I, I own a Facebook page, Forensic Genealogy, and Margaret started pondering 
Why can't we do John and Jane Doe's? John and Jane Doe's are bodies that have never been identified. And she continued to ponder, even as I said, well, they don't do that, do they, with ancestry? And she continued to ponder. And I said, well, maybe I'll ponder with you. And so we continue to ponder, and that, that's where we are today. Today, Colleen and Margaret run a nonprofit called DNA Doe, which basically uses forensic genealogy to try and identify these unidentified bodies, these Jane and John Doe's. Now, neither Colleen nor Margaret come from a genetics or a law enforcement background. Um, I have a doctorate in nuclear physics from Duke University. I design laser systems for NASA and the Department of Defense. I owned a company and in high tech. And in the meantime, I got interested in genetic genealogy and DNA. And when we closed up in 2005, we closed a company. It kind of, for many reasons, we went into forensics and carried DNA with us. And uh, Margaret here. Uh, my doctorate is actually in linguistics from UCLA. I grew up in the LA area. And uh, I worked in software development for my most of my career. And along the way, it was just a, a hobby hobby genealogist for many, many years. And when DNA testing hit the markets in the early 2000s, when I discovered that and that it was affordable and how exciting it was to find out genetically some of the things that I had been working on just with, as they call them, paper trails, it was just the most exciting discovery of my life, I believe. Even though they come to this from maybe some untraditional angles, Colleen and Margaret do have a very particular set of skills that make DNA dough successful. Margaret has years of genealogical sleuthing under her belt in her work helping adoptees find their biological parents. And Colleen has connections with law enforcement from her other companies. And it just so happened that Colleen knew the folks working in Grays Harbor, which is where Lyle Stevick died. Back in February, uh, Colleen was contacted by someone from the Reddit group that follows, has followed the Lyle Stevick case for years and years. They've been trying to look at crime scene photos and figure out who he is. They've been very, very uh, eager to solve his identity. And when Colleen and Margaret realized that Lyle Stevick had such a big online community trying to figure out who he was, they decided to tackle the case. And sequencing began, and we funded him overnight from this community of of people really eager to see him identified. Now, this isn't a full sequencing. The human genome contains about 3 billion base pairs in it. The bioinformatics team then takes from those 3 billion locations and carves out a much smaller file for us that looks just like what something Ancestry or 23andMe would produce. It's more like 600,000 locations or uh, SNPs, as we call them. And that is the file that we can then upload to GEDmatch. That's G-E-D-Match, GEDmatch. GEDmatch is a database that we can compare our DOE files with other people who've tested at the regular direct-to-consumer company. Then the website spits out a huge list of names of folks that the subject in question could be related to. From there, DNA Doe's team of genealogical research volunteers get to work, scouring the web for information about each person on that list and trying to connect the dots and figure out who Lyle Stavik might actually be related to. His results came in in late March, and we have now about 20 volunteers who've been working at various times on that case for a month and a half now. 
it took a lot of work because he came from a community where there were a lot of intermarriages among the ancestors. But eventually, just a couple of weeks ago, they found a match. Ultimately, we were able to locate some family who were close enough that they knew that one of their relatives had been missing for all these years, for up to 20 years. So, success. Case closed. The man known as Lyle Stevick has now been identified. His family actually didn't realize that he was dead. They thought he was just missing. Now, they know what happened to him. The news of his identification spread super quickly around the Lyle Stevick communities online. And I thought, oh my God. I like I had to I had to click on it to see that it was that it was real because I couldn't believe it that it had actually happened. When I read through the comments on the subreddit announcement that Lyle's true identity had been found, it was fascinating. Everyone was really excited, but also some people expressed their own kind of I guess mourning because now this community it's kind of it's kind of over, right? This thing that they spent thousands and thousands of hours obsessing over is done. It's solved. It wasn't so much sadness that it was closed, but kind of having to get used to the the fact that he was now identified because I had been following and discussing the case for so long that it kind of sort of in it, it's like in a way it's like it kind of became part of kind of I guess I guess you could say it kind of became part of my life in a way. The true identity of Lyle Stevick is private information that we will not be sharing here. Lyle Stevick's family has been very clear that they do not want his real identity to be out there and shared. McCrimmon and some of the other moderators are moving on to new cases. We're, well, we're venturing out to um, what's called Miami-Dade Does, which are John and Jane Does that were found in the Miami-Dade area. For DNA Doe, they're already on to the next unidentified body. We are going to identify every John and Jane Doe in the country. We're certainly getting a lot of inquiries for Doe cases. And right now, a lot of agencies are off looking at what kind of DNA they already have available. This technique, this DNA matching plus genealogy, is likely to get a lot more common in the near future. You might have heard about this kind of DNA matching from the news recently about the accused Golden State serial killer. The suspect was identified after years of no leads using this same technique. DNA Doe doesn't do criminal cases. They only do unidentified bodies. But this same technique is being used by law enforcement to hunt for suspects right now. For Colleen and Margaret, a future in which everybody has their DNA sequenced and loaded up into these genealogy sites, it sounds great. Then the analysis part would be extremely easy. Everyone would have a first cousin once removed in the database. And the, the shift would really be on the technology of extracting DNA from more and more great degraded samples. In fact, even just getting access to more databases would be great. Right now, they can only use GEDmatch. Other sites like Ancestry.com won't let them do this kind of analysis. If we had access to Ancestry, which is 10 times the size of GEDmatch, then these cases would be solved very, very quickly. But there's something also ethically, let's say, interesting here, right? You have law enforcement utilizing these databases that are really for people to find relatives and firm up their family tree. 
And while it's hard to argue against catching serial killers, it's also important to think about how this kind of thing could go awry. Why wouldn't you want your DNA to be used to catch a bad guy? Like, duh. My name is Kelly Hills, and I am a bioethicist with the consulting firm Rogue Bioethics. So there's a um, George Washington University Law School professor by the name of Dan Solov, and um, he calls this the nothing-to-hide argument. It's an easy surface response, I think, because, you know, we have a knee-jerk response of wanting to be good and helpful. But I think that in some ways it's a very privileged response that probably tends to come from people who aren't historically having problems with police shooting you for holding a cell phone. We know, for example, that these DNA links can be wrong, which means they could wind up implicating family members or people who had nothing to do with a crime at all. And it's also worth thinking about the precedent that's being set here, right? These are local law enforcement agencies giving DNA to a nonprofit group of volunteer researchers. There's little to no oversight here. So far, nothing has gone wrong, but it feels a little bit naive to think that it couldn't. Their intent, I understand, is really good, and I, I do not besmirch that at all. There are horrible backlogs of rape kits nationwide, cold cases that shouldn't be cold. Police departments don't have enough resources to tackle these issues, and so they're doing the best things they think they can for their community to try and clear these cases. These are all really good motivations. But that doesn't mean that the wrong person isn't going to be fingered for a, a crime they didn't commit. Um, in this case, we know investigators are just uploading DNA they have on file to trawl through a large database of possible familial matches. It's kind of more akin to what the NSA did with online mass surveillance than what we would normally consider appropriate civilian law enforcement. And this actually brings us to an added layer of complexity when we start to think about the ethics here, too. Because when you decide to upload your DNA to a site like GEDmatch, you're not just making that decision for yourself. You're actually kind of making that decision for everybody who you're closely related to. Well, I guess the first thing I want to say is I actually don't think in the terms of DNA tests, it's ever just about the individual. Because your DNA is never just yours. And that's what makes DNA testing a little bit different than just about anything else, because it's not just you. It is you and anybody who shares your DNA. And sharing your DNA can become a very nebulous term these days when we're able to track grandfathers and second cousins and, and on. For the DNA Doe folks, this is actually an argument in favor of getting your DNA tested and uploading it to the site. And remember, too, if I'm reluctant to put my DNA up there, if my brother does, my DNA is virtually there anyway. So you can't, it's something you can't avoid. It's the world we live in. Kelly does not exactly see it that way. My dearly departed mother echoes in my head, if everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, I, I get, I, I, it's a, a flip answer, but... Just because somebody's doing it doesn't make it right. And beyond the whole law enforcement surveillance thing, there are also other reasons to be wary of handing your genetic information over to a third-party company. 
they're bundling it together. They're selling it on to other companies who are doing research. They're looking for their own information to patent. Now, for Colleen and Margaret, they've decided that the potential benefits outweigh the potential drawbacks. And there are totally understandable reasons that you might want to send off your DNA and find out where your ancestors came from. That's actually a really compelling question for some people, um, for people who have been adopted um, in closed adoptions, and they just, they have no context for their medical history. And very much people who, whose families were part of the Middle Passage trade and who's, who are descended from slaves and literally just have this giant blank slate of, I came from Africa in violence, but that's it, and and want to know where they came from. And these are two audiences in particular who are starting to be very targeted by these companies. I'm very uncomfortable with that because, you know, these companies are trying to make money off of pain. There is actually one company that does DNA sequencing and does not sell your data or use it in these ways. And it's specifically for folks whose ancestors were taken during the slave trade. It's called African Ancestry. It's a 100% Black-owned company with Black scientists. It was founded by Dr. Gina Page and Rick Kittles in 2003. And it is particularly fantastic for people who are looking for African lineage, African ethnic groups, countries of origin, etc. Um, they have a database of over 33,000 lineages across 40 specific countries. Um, it is phenomenally huge compared to any other DNA database out there that's being targeted towards you. At least in my mind, the fact that they aren't doing research with your DNA and they're not selling it is really important because they are just providing the service that answers the question, where did my family come from? I do want to be clear here, right? It's not like there's anything ethically dubious about wanting to know your family history, right? Learning more about your heritage can be really cool. But we should all be very, very aware of how closely we want to connect genetics, genealogy, heritage, and culture. You don't have to go all that far back in history to see examples of how heredity and ancestry can be weaponized against marginalized folks. Identity is just so much more than DNA, and, and reducing it down to DNA is deeply concerning because we've, we've done that in the past, and that root always leads to racism and, and badness, basically. And this isn't really theoretical either. Dubai, for example, recently announced plans to test the DNA of everybody in the country. If you are like a, a true sort of citizen, you know, someone of Arab descent, that would sort of, you know, they would be able to see that from your DNA. And if you're like a guest worker, you know, if you're, you know, from the Philippines or even a Palestinian, they would be able to tell you apart. And, there, and that would be a way to sort of genetically determine who gets all the fantastic benefits that, you know, come from the oil economy or not. That's Carl Zimmer again. Logically, it's doomed to failure, but people will try. So you might be wondering when we're going to talk about gene editing in all of this. You've probably heard about all kinds of exciting and scary new advances that let scientists edit human genes. Would that totally bork the DNA genealogy system? The answer is we don't know yet. It actually depends on whether or not the regions that ancestry sites use are the same regions that people might want to edit. I'm going to do a whole other episode about CRISPR and gene editing in a couple of weeks. So for now, that is all that I'm going to say about that. 
But there is one thing that's really easy to predict about this future. We won't stop being obsessed with our ancestry. Even as science and technology give us more answers and more ways of thinking about our histories, it can't really answer the big question that I think drives so much of this, which is, why am I like this? That's not something that any of these tests or techniques can actually answer. I think we just look to the past and imagine that somehow we're kind of like a, you know, a Lego statue and there are these these Lego pieces snap together from the past to make us who we are. And so we just keep looking and looking and looking and and we think that we can find these answers. I just don't I don't think heredity can give us all the answers that we want. Uh, and so in a way that just makes us keep searching even harder. That's all for this future. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. Special thanks this week to our guests. You can find Carl Zimmer's book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity, wherever you buy books. You can also find Kim Tallbear's book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and The False Promise of Genetic Science, wherever you buy your books. You can read more of Kristen Brown's work at kristenvbrown.com. You can find out more about the DNA Doe Project at dnadoeproject.com. And you can check out Kelly Hills's bioethics consulting group, Rogue Bioethics, at roguebioethics.com. Their motto is a take-no-prisoners approach to bioethics, because taking prisoners would be unethical. As always, links to all of those things and more in the show notes. The future voices from the beginning of this episode were played by Jenna Dixon and Josh Dean. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I do love hearing your ideas, and I try to respond to everybody. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give money. But if giving money is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave a nice review. Or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help. Okay, that's all for this future. See you next time, and we'll travel to a new one. 